This section we've been covering here, I'm already looking forward to re-preaching the book of Romans one of these days. Romans 6, 7, and 8 is probably the most important section of the New Testament for someone to understand how to live the Christian life. We, uh, as Christians, do have a lot of uh, joy, a lot of love and admiration for the gospel message itself, the message of salvation. But if you want to know the truth, salvation is the easy part. God calls those that he's going to call and, and, and we repent of our sin and we come to the Lord Jesus. And if you do that when you're 18 or 20 or 30 years old, or even if you're 50 or 60, you've, you've got a lot of years in front of you to learn to live by faith. How do you live the Christian life? What is the Christian life actually made of? In the book of Romans, chapters 6 and forward, in particular 6, 7, and 8, have much to say about what is involved in actually living the Christian life. Part of it, part of what is involved in Christian life, we see there in the opening lines of uh, Romans chapter 8, where he says there in in verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's no condemnation for those ones. On down to verse 4, he says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You'll notice in in verse 1 that no condemnation is for a person who has two characterizations, two qualifications, do you see in, in verse 1? They're in Christ, and they walk according to the Spirit. And I will argue that that's the same thing. Someone who is in Christ, or we could maybe just say someone who's saved. A Christian is in Christ, and a Christian walks according to the Spirit. And we're going to be focusing on this aspect of, of Christian life here, and that's why we jumped straight to verse 4 again where it said the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Christian life is a life of living according to the Spirit. Look at Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh (coughs) set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. There are two contrasts repeatedly being made already that you're noticing, right? The flesh and the spirit. The flesh and the spirit are being contrasted like like not having been yet even seen in the whole book of Romans. We're seeing this very, very clearly being contrasted for us. So, five, five said... Those who live according to the flesh set their minds, their mind, on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, their minds are set on things of the Spirit. How much of your life do you live in your mind? Have you ever thought about that, my friend? You know how much of your life happens in your mind? where it all starts your life is in your mind first and then it comes out of your mouth out of your hands even out of your attitude your, your, your sadness and unmet expectations it all starts in your mind verse 9 but you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's an interesting statement. Verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Justification is brought into focus early in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5 bring this word justification to light. We, we are introduced to justification by faith. Faith being the, 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 the mode or the means by which the unrighteous are declared righteous. Justification is by faith. The faith of Abraham and the faith of David are exemplified there in, in Romans chapter 4. And, and with justification, this declaration of righteousness before God, God's wrath is stayed. God's wrath is turned away from those who have put their faith in Christ because Christ has received that wrath instead for the believer. And a couple weeks ago we were in this very same section of Scripture thinking about a slightly different question. And the question was, has justification simply put a person in a position where salvation has begun and then we would finish our salvation by completing or by filling up our works of righteousness. And the reason we ask that question is, one, that is a theology that's around the world today. There are a lot of Christians who claim that once you have believed in Christ, then you have been put into a position to finally finish earning your salvation. Faith gets you started and your works complete salvation in the theology. It's a very popular theology in the world right now. And if you look at verse 4, you see how it's possible. You might read it this way. I'll have to start at verse 3. What the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That or so that, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We can read that passage and go, oh, I've been saved so I can finish earning my righteousness. That's it's not an entirely illogical reading of that sentence there. That's why this theology, or that's why a lot of people think that this must be true. But for example, if we look at a Titus, let's just look at Titus 3.4. I think that was one of the passages that we looked at a couple weeks ago. But it's an example of why this is not a, an accurate interpretation of this. In other words, justification isn't the beginning of salvation so that you can finish salvation by your works. So look at Titus 3 verses 4 and 6. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. One example of many places we might look in the New Testament to understand how does justification work and what does it work for? What does justification accomplish? It is the court's declaration of your righteousness or innocence. Innocent isn't quite right, but your righteousness upon your faith in Christ. Abraham believed and it was credited unto him as righteousness. So, when we do understand that perfect righteousness is yours by faith in Christ, it's a logical question. It's, it's, I don't think it's a reasonable one, but I'm going to use the word reason. It's reasonable for you to say, well, since we can do whatever we want, since our salvation wasn't dependent upon us, we can do whatever we want. 
Shall we just continue in sin? And then, so Romans 6, 1 asks the question, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin? Grace may abound. Paul asks this question. He's, he's arguing and explaining the, the, the outworkings of the gospel after justification. Well, why not just go ahead and keep on sinning? And he says, no, we never shall. We should not. It would be absurd. And he explains between 6 and 7 that one of the things a Christian needs to remember and needs to understand that upon putting your faith in Christ, if you have believed savingly in Christ, you died with Christ. The Lord Jesus died to sin. He was crucified with the sins of the world set upon him. He died to sin. If you died with Christ, you too have died to sin. And this is why you should not carry on in sin. You've already died with Christ. You died for sin with Christ. You have a new master. He goes on to explain in chapter 7. If you've died with Christ, that means the, the bond that existed between the man and sin. There's a legal bond between them. That's been broken if you've died with Christ. There is no bond between you and sin, between you and the law, if you've been buried with Christ, if you died with Christ. In the same way that a death of a spouse legally ends a marriage, so too does your death with Christ legally break your bond to the law and to sin. What is the bond? What does the law get to have? What does sin get to have if you don't break that bond? Your death. So that has been broken and that has been ended. So then, when you have a new master, the question then turns in, in Paul's writing and is explaining this to us. He begins to speak about the power of the flesh in a Christian. The power of the flesh. That hasn't been really discussed to this point in Romans. We've learned about the sinful nature and the depravity of man in the early chapters and verses of Romans. But he hasn't really talked about this idea of the flesh. He hasn't talked about what he is going to refer to, and I'm going to give you definitions in a minute, but there's such a thing as natural carnality. There is something that's called carnality in man. In you and I, in men. There is also the carnality of the unsaved alone. That is, there is a carnality, there is a fleshliness that, that, that identifies the unsaved. That is not the same thing as the kind of a carnality that could be in a Christian. There's a, there's a difference of that, those two kinds of carnality. And then he speaks to us about the work of the Holy Spirit in regard to this carnality that still exists in a Christian. So let's work on uh, definition, work on understanding these meanings of the word carnal and flesh for just a minute. In these uh, few verses that you read between uh, chapter uh, 8, verses 1 on down to, I don't know, probably about verse 17 or so. The, the word carnal or flesh is mentioned at least 10 times. Carnal and flesh in the, in the original language have the very same root word, and that's why I'm putting them together. Uh, they're, they're not different words in Greek. They say the same thing. Carnal, uh, sarx is the word. And so if you could read Greek, you'd see this word sarx over and over again at least these ten times. So sometimes carnal and flesh simply is referring to your human body. So Galatians 2.20 is a passage that maybe some of you even have memorized. But you'll see this word flesh used and what it means is a, a person in Galatians 2.20. Sometimes this word flesh simply is referring to the being of a person. I am crucified with Christ, he says in Galatians 2.20. And then he says, nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You guys are familiar with the verse now. I think maybe you're remembering it. The life which I now live in the flesh. I've been crucified with Christ and yet I live. And yet the life I now live in the flesh. He says, here's that word. So what does he mean by flesh there? He simply means that I have a, 
a, a life made of this body. And it's called flesh. This life I live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's, there's that use of that word there. Flesh there simply is referring to a human being. John 3.6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And he's having this amazing, this unbelievable conversation with Nicodemus. Explaining to Nicodemus the difference between spirit and flesh. And how you must receive a spirit birth if you are to have eternal life. And poor Nicodemus is just flummoxed by this. And he goes, look, what is flesh is born of flesh. You must be born of spirit. There it is, that, that same use of that word again. It just means humanity. The, the fleshliness of humanity. Sometimes the word flesh refers to an ungodly nature or ungodliness. Ephesians 2, 3 is an example of many places where we might um, realize that this word flesh makes that sort of reference. So let me just read you Ephesians 2, 3. It says... Among whom, also, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. There's, there's this thing in the flesh that has appetites. That When, when I use that phrase, lusts of the flesh, I, I think you all realize that there is certain appetites and desires and even affections of the, of the body and of the flesh that are ungodly. And the Bible calls them lusts of the flesh. So we see that sometimes the Bible uses that word to speak about an, the ungodly nature of mankind. The, un, the ungodliness of humanity. Sometimes it speaks about man's nature that's in conflict with the spirit of God. It's very similar to this uh, reference in 2.3, but listen to John 6.63. John 6.63 says... It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. See the contrast between flesh and spirit in this verse here? The, the spirit has and can have life. The flesh profits nothing. He says in this verse, The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Meaning the person who is of the flesh doesn't even hear these words of the Spirit and understand them. The, the flesh and the Spirit are, are in, in, in contradistinction to one another. They're, they're different entities almost. Philippians 3.3 Philippians 3.3 says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. You remember the Lord Jesus speaking with a woman in Samaria? God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Here in Philippians 3.3, we are the circumcision, which is kind of a, a, an idiomatic reference to the people of God. We are the circumcision. We are the ones marked out for, the ones made holy to God. We are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. Flesh and spirit are contrasted there in Philippians 3.3 3, in, in essence saying if the spirit has not been animated by God, if, if the spirit is not the place where there is spiritual life, then it has nothing to do with God. It's in an antagonistic relationship to God until the spirit has been given life by God. And we'll see in, in some references here in, in a moment how clear and how, how true that is. So when we read in this passage here, when we read these references to flesh, and we read these references to carnal, we need to read with great care. We need to really be careful to understand what is the point that he's making. The word carnal and the word flesh doesn't only mean one thing. It tends to have a, a little bit of a broad meaning. So we've got to look at these verses with some carefulness here. One of the points that's obvious in, in, in our section in Romans is that sin and ungodliness are mutually exclusive. That comes out in this passage. In other words, a person in sin can't in any way claim to have any kind of godliness. And so we're being exhorted as Christians early in the passage, we're being exhorted, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Why? Because the flesh 
The flesh is in an antagonistic. The, the, the flesh is, is an enemy to God and His Spirit. So he's teaching the Christian, walk in the Spirit. So, you and I as a Christian are being taught here in, in this passage, in, in this section, how is it that you are to understand and then relate to the Spirit of God? How, how is it that the Spirit of God is going to help you, lead you, and teach you so that you actually are living in a way that is pleasing to God? And that's why in the introduction of those first couple verses there, look with me, he said, the law could not do in verse 3 because it was weak. God did, and so God condemns sin in the flesh. So, so sin in the flesh is condemned. So, and then verse 4, it goes on to say that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see that? God has condemned sin in the flesh. Why? So that the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us. In other words, what you owe as a sinner is paid for in the death of the Lord Jesus. So that means with the debt paid, your good can count for good. Does that make sense to you? I was trying to think of even how, how we could make sense of this, and I don't, I don't have any brilliant uh, illustrations, but let's say, let's say you're a murderer, and, and the court has looked at the evidence, and the court has heard the witnesses, and the court says, yeah, you're a, you're a murderer. You're a horrible person and, and you, you must die. So, that, here, here's where the illustration gets kind of crazy. The court says, you know, do whatever you want for the next month and, and you come back and, and next month we're going to have to put you to death. So this person leaves court for a few days and they decide to give $10,000 to this church. They decide to go and, and do this little good work of merit and do this kind deed and, and then he comes back to the court thinking, you know, I've done these really nice things. I've done these great things. And, you know, they're going to admire me for it. I've, I've, I'm worthy of somebody's admiration now, and I've earned some merit. What does the court say to a person who, is, who has done that? What does the judge say? He says, you're a murderer. Your, your merits, your, your deeds, your, your gifts to those things, they don't mean anything. You're a murderer. You're a criminal. You're unrighteous. So in the same way, when the sinner's sin has been atoned for in Christ, you have actually been freed from the charge of sin and from the, from the accusation of the law so that the good things you would do by the Spirit count as good things. They are good things. They don't add to your salvation. They don't add to your righteousness. But they're good. And they're recognized as good because of that. So, how do we go about doing good and being pleasing to God because of the Spirit of God? This is, this is the thing that's being held out before us. Verse 8, I'm sorry, chapter 8 and verse 13. Look what he says here in verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. This is what's being taught to a Christian here. This is not justification. This is sanctification. This is how a Christian lives a life set apart in God. How do you live a sanctified life? How do you live the life of a servant of God? If by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. One thing we're recognizing or learning is that carnality, as I said a minute ago, fleshliness and carnality can never be pleasing to God. And therefore, the Christian life, your life as a Christian, is a battle against this carnality. It's a battle against Flesh. Look at verse 6, chapter 8, verse 6. Do you see it? To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So the mind, the mind that is occupied with the carnal, with the flesh, 
is death. The mind that is occupied, the mind that is adjusted to the spiritual, is life. And so he is very clearly teaching that there is such a thing as to have a life that is death. Can you live and be dead? There is. That the mind set on these things of the flesh is actually a mind of death. And therefore that produces a life of death. So why did God why did God give life to men? Well, why do you why do you plant a garden? Why do you plant tomato plants? Why do you plant cucumbers or apples? Well, for fruit. God God gave life to the dead for fruit. He redeemed and, and put his spirit in men for fruit, for life. And so, if, if we don't recognize the fact that you have been given life in Christ for the point of fruitfulness, for the point of producing fruit by the Spirit, opposed to what is carnal, then you don't understand the Christian life. You don't understand why God has given you life. Carnal produces no spiritual fruit. The flesh produces no spiritual fruit. The spirit is where life and fruit come. Are you guys familiar with 1 Corinthians 10.31? You uh, remember that verse? He says, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, can you finish the sentence? Do all the glory of God. It's a very overly simplified in a way. It's a very summarized way of understanding what do you live for? What is it you're, you're doing in your life? Well, whether you eat or you drink, or whatever you do, the man who is in Christ has been given life to give glory to God. Well, how do you do that? Do you do that in the flesh? Or do you do that in the spirit? You do it in the spirit. Because to be carnal is to be antagonistic to God. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't be pleasing to God in the flesh. You must be in the Spirit. You must walk in the Spirit. You must be putting the deeds of the flesh to death. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. Not, not, not only is this um, a, a, a powerful truth here that, that is being explained to you and I in, in God's Word, this is also something that has been prophetically announced the prophet Ezekiel speaks about this. We're going to look at only one verse. Ezekiel 36, verse 27. Look at what he says here. Thinking about the spirit, thinking about the flesh. We'll go, we'll go to verse 26 and 27. Sorry, I lied. Two verses. I will give you a new heart, says verse 26, and put a new spirit within you, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The stony heart replaced with a fleshy heart. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Why is he going to do that? He says, you will keep my judgments and do them. The prophet Ezekiel is speaking about what we call the new covenant. The, the heart of man under the old covenant is this stony heart, this hard heart. That can hear the commands of God and just remain in rebellion to them. And the prophets speak, Jeremiah speaks of this same uh, incident that Ezekiel is speaking about. The, the stony heart of man is to be replaced under the new covenant. Why? so that the heart of man, by the Spirit, would walk with the Lord and produce righteousness. You see that? Whose, whose work is man's righteousness? God's. If you produce any righteousness that, that redounds to God's fame and, and results in His glory, whose is it? It's His. He has done a heart transplant. 
He's going to spirit transplant, leading and directing and changing men to bring about his own glory. So Ezekiel prophesies about God's spirit being given to believers so that they walk in his statutes. Look at John 14, 17. John 14, 17. So Ezekiel speaks about this day that is coming. John 14 and verse 17. The Lord Jesus says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know. You know him. He dwells with you and will be in you. He promises to leave his spirit and to put his spirit in men when he leaves. We're going to look at one more like this. It's 1526. John 1526. Again, speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he says, when the helper comes, though I really dislike the word helper here, because um, it just kind of sounds corny to me. The, the Greek word speaks about uh, an advocate who will stand with you in a courtroom. And so if you have to go to court and, and speak to the judge, and if you have to understand the law, and if you have to make a case to defend yourself, and if, if you have to be able to adequately explain evidence and, and go into some kind of battle with this person who's arguing against you, you need a really sharp lawyer. You need someone to help you interact with the judge in a way that the judge isn't offended, in a way that is legal. This is the word that's being talked to. So helper here is, is the word paraclete. And the paraclete is the person who goes with this defendant to the judge to explain and defend the, 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 the law and the evidence, etc. So that's what the word actually means. So when the, when, when the Lord here says, when the helper comes, he's speaking about this paraclete. When the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will, what will this paraclete do? What will this helper do? He will testify of me. The spirit that he sends testifies of the Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit proceeds from the Father, comes to those that the Lord is giving the spirit to, which is all Christians, and he testifies of Christ. This is the work of the spirit. This is one of the plain, just black and white works of the spirit. What? Testifying of Christ. Your convictions about who he is, your convictions about his, his own testimonies. The Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus, the Savior. So when we realize that what's at stake here is God's glory, why, why is God giving the Spirit to lift up the name of Christ? Why is God giving the Spirit in the context of Romans chapter 8? so that you won't walk in carnalness, so that you won't live in fleshliness. It's so that you will fulfill the righteousness of God. The Spirit is given so that you can actually counter the work of sin and unrighteousness in you. The Spirit. Those who are in Christ... Remember, that's what it said there in verse 4. Those who are in Christ and walk according to the Spirit can accomplish this thing. This, this idea that he uses two phrases, in Christ and in the Spirit, is not speaking about two different kinds of Christians. I'm only going to mention this for a moment, but this is another teaching very common today. Today, there are many who teach that Christians come in two flavors. Carnal Christians, spirit-filled Christians, and then unbelievers. So there's this category in, in the theology of some that you might have believed in Christ, you might have come to faith in Christ, but you're carnal until you get filled with the Spirit. 
and then you start living a fruitful and spiritual life and that's garbage it is not what the Bible is teaching at all when you believe when you savingly have, have put your faith in Christ you're filled with the Spirit you're sealed by the Spirit and the Spirit is given to a Christian that he might walk in godliness not to earn his salvation but in order to resist sin in order to live a sanctified life and so if you've heard that kind of teaching before just realize that that's garbage there is Christians and non-Christians there's two categories of people in the world and when somebody is living like the devil and claiming to be a Christian don't tell yourself and don't tell them oh you're just carnal you just need to be filled with the spirit no you need to get saved you, you need to repent of your sin, put your faith and trust in Christ. That is your only ground for eternal life. Living like the devil is never, <laughs> never the basis by which you should assure yourself that you're a Christian, right? I think that's obvious, but just in case it wasn't, I wanted to make sure I mentioned it. 1 Corinthians 3.16 1 Corinthians 3.16 is, is one place where we see, again, just to, just to make sure we can make these kind of points with Scripture, that a, a Christian has been indwelt by the Spirit. A, a Christian has the Spirit. It's not something that happens at some later point in time. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. Try not to lose my place in Romans, and so it makes me turn pages quite slowly. Okay, he says, Do you not know, Christian, that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? A Christian should know that. And that's that's the basis of an argument for him saying, Therefore, don't live sinfully. Don't you know that the Holy Spirit indwelt you when you believed in the Lord Jesus? Don't live like a pagan. Don't shame the temple of God by living like a pagan. Don't let your mouth, don't let your hands, don't let your life give glory to demons. You become the dwelling place of God. That's the point. Enough said. It is God's method. It is God's method that by the prophecy of the prophets, by the words of the Lord Jesus, the Spirit would come. God's Spirit would come and He would indwell men, that men would engage in this fight against sin. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. Look at verse 5 now. Romans 8, verse 5. Romans 8, verse 5. Trying to give you a little bit more help here before we wrap things up today. Verse 5 said, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live in according, according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, he says. So, Again, the question needs to be, for the person who's listening to Paul teach, for the person whose soul is engaged with, what are we thinking here? What are we supposed to understand, Lord? What are you asking of me? A moment ago I said this begins in the mind. There is a mind in every one of us. What is the mind engaged in? What is your mind on? What's on your mind? Spirit or flesh? Spirit or or flesh. Verses 6 and 7 give us a tiny bit of contrast of the difference between spirit and flesh. Verse 6, to be carnally minded is death. Spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor can be. So, in a way, there's a little bit of a test here. What, what's on your mind? Do God's ways of righteousness, do God's ways of holiness get you into an argument with Him? Or do God's ways and, and God's revelation of Himself comfort you? Do they, do they, do they serve as light to you when you understand God's 
word and mind being revealed to you. Well, if you find yourself debating with the Lord, that's one way of saying the word enmity. When you don't like what the Lord has said to you, when you when you disagree and you're mad at what his expectation is of you, you are at enmity with God. That's called carnalness, or that's called death. But when his word comforts you, when, when his word serves as, as, as simple instruction, the ways of your life, then you are at peace with him. You're not at enmity with him. So, carnal and spiritual. Enmity with God at peace with God. Look at Philippians 2.5. Look at Philippians 2.5. I told you a minute ago, twice now, that life really does begin in the mind. And so look at this really well-known passage here about the mind. Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's instruction for your mind. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, this is kind of a strange phrase, difficult to understand, and, and what it means is that in his exaltation, the second person of the Trinity is, is the most exalted being in the universe. The Son, who is the second person of the Trinity, is the eternal Son. And as the eternal Son, or as the eternal second person of the Trinity, there's never a time when he wasn't fully God. And so when the Lord Jesus takes on flesh and dwelt among us, as it is described to us in John chapter 1, for example, this, this isn't something that demeaned him. In other words, the Lord Jesus was willing to give up immeasurable glory, immeasurable exaltation to take on your form. In your, wherever your poor proportions are, wherever your ignominious uh, glory is, whatever is homely about you, whatever is unintelligent about you, whatever is debased about you, humanity is a low creature when you compare it to the second person of the Trinity, isn't it? The Lord Jesus, what does he say? No, I don't want to be a man. No, the, the, the Lord humbled himself. He left the, the station of the most exalted being in the universe to take on flesh. And not only that, really to start off in the crib. It's, 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 it is astonishing. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, goes on to say, taking the form of a slave. How does the highest being in the universe, how does the most glorious, most good, most beautiful, most intelligent, how does the greatest being in the universe have his mind? Utter humility. Have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name. Have this mind. That is the mind of God. That is the mind of the Spirit. And it is granted to us to have this mind because the carnal mind cannot please God. The fleshly mind is at enmity with God. So your mind's attention as a Christian isn't all of what it means to walk in the Spirit. But when the apostles teach you and I about our minds and about how we engage with the world around us in terms of how do you fight sin? 
How do you walk and live a life of faith? Look at one more cross-reference with me before we close. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. 1 Peter 1 and verse 13. He says, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind. There's a picturesque word. Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is, is a way of describing the end of this age. When this age comes to an end and the Lord returns to begin His reign, all of His people are changed. The age ends. The consummation of the age ends. And what has been invisible in terms of our hope is finally made visible. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. That's such an interesting phrase. Um, it, it, it refers to when, when, when you gird up the, your loins as a man in this context, your, your clothes that could easily trip you up in, in, in a little bit of a longer piece of rope type clothes gets pulled up and kind of wrapped around your waist in something you could actually exercise or work or run in when it's girded up in this way. And so he's saying, get your mind ready for real activity and action. Christian, get your mind ready for this. Verse 14, as obedient children... Not conforming yourselves to former lusts. Does that sound like what Paul is talking about in, in Romans chapter 8? Of course it does. One author of scripture. Do not be conformed to your former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be holy in your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now, he's saying prepare for that glorious day Set your minds on that day that is in the future of every Christian by getting your mind ready for action now. What is your action? Don't be ignorant. Don't be unholy. Live a life that is set apart to God. That's what holy means. How, how were the priests made holy? They had special clothes. They had special ceremonies. They had a special diet. Everything about them was set apart unto the Lord. Are you holy? Are you yourself, in, in your mind and in your life, are you set apart to the Lord? This is what's being instructed to us. You do this by the Spirit. You do this by the Spirit. Justification has made you right before God in the courtroom. Sanctification is how you learn to walk with the Spirit of God. Do you walk with the Spirit of God? Do you oppose sin in your life by the Spirit of God? This is what he is teaching us here. Finally, in verse 17, that same passage in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. He's not threatening somebody with the loss of their salvation. He is saying this. Do you realize what your redemption cost you? What did it cost to put you in the family of God? What did it cost to give you the label as Christian? What did it cost? The blood of the Son of God. Don't look at the cost of what God has spent to eradicate sin as something that, that means nothing. It was dear. There's nothing more expensive than the redemption of a man's soul. And he says, since you know what it costs, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing you weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. If you are a person whose life has been redeemed from the tradition of your fathers, these are just some closing thoughts here. If you are a life who has been redeemed from the traditions of your fathers, what he means is you have been purchased 
from that. Are you living in the traditions of your fathers? Or are you pursuing Christ? Are you pursuing the holiness that is in Christ? Are you pursuing the godliness that is in Christ? Mendocino County has, in general, two kinds of traditions. Hippie culture, hippie rebel culture is one kind of tradition of the fathers in Mendocino County, and then there's another culture. Hardworking, patriotic American culture. Now, that may have oversimplified, and there may be a couple more in there, but those are two obvious ones. Do you borrow your traditions from the hardworking, blue-collar patriots, or do you borrow your traditions from the hippie drug culture? Now, the traditions might be your mouth, it might be what do you do with your free time, it might be how you pursue pleasure for yourself, what you lift up and what you exalt. What he's saying here is, you have been redeemed from the tradition of your fathers. In other words, don't live in the tradition of your fathers that wasn't godly. Don't keep the things of traditions that were some other kind of glory. Your life has been given the spirit that we might glorify the Lord. Justification has purchased your righteousness and sanctification has taught you to walk in the spirit and stay clean. It's called washing of the water by the word in Ephesians chapter 5. Washing of the water by the word that we would be clean. That we would be holy in the sight of God. Let me just close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Dear God, we thank you that our eyes can see, our minds can comprehend righteousness and goodness. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us a new master. We don't have to obey sin. We can obey the Lord Jesus. We can walk with him. Oh, Lord, I pray you would accomplish your good purposes, accomplish your works among your people. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys have any uh, questions, any personal questions, any uh, I don't know, interest in, in pursuing some things that maybe you don't quite get or understand, I'd be happy to uh, speak with you either this afternoon or, or during the week. Learning about sanctification is, is challenging. It's hard. Remember, the Lord Jesus is still our high priest. The Lord Jesus is the high priest. And the high priest is there that we have someone to confess to, to bring our confessions to. And that is what he does. He brings your confessions. He brings your sins before God. And he mediates for us. After lunch today, we are having a, a, a technology workshop and uh, we're going to be teaching a little bit about how we do some of the church technology so that some of you can uh, do some of these things um, when I'm not here. So if you can be here this afternoon for that, that would be great. Otherwise, join us for lunch. Otherwise, see you next week. Thanks.